Welcome to the Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today is episode 80, audio samples from Lies of the Magpie, chapters 32 and 33. Hey friends, welcome. So glad you are here. How are you doing? How is your summer going? I hope wherever you are that you are healthy and doing well. Today we are continuing with our summer podcast series. I am sharing free bonus samples from the audio version of my recently released memoir, Lies of the Magpie. Great news, the audio is completely recorded. Now the book is in editing process and then it will go through the publication process. If you want to make sure that you do not miss the release of the audio version or miss any news or special offers about Lies of the Magpie, Subscribe at MaliaWarner.com to be on the Lies of the Magpie newsletter, and that way you will be the first to know about any specials, any sales, any book tours, or things coming your way. That is the way to stay current. Before we begin, I sincerely want to thank everyone who has gone to Amazon or Goodreads and left a review or has tried to leave a review. I'm getting some messages about people who Amazon has rejected your reviews for whatever reason. I'm so sorry that has happened. Amazon is extremely picky about having legitimate reviews. So of course they won't let my mother leave a review because they don't think that she would have an unbiased opinion, which they're probably right. But I do think they take it to the extreme and there are people trying to leave reviews that for no rhyme or reason their reviews have been rejected. So I'm sorry if that has happened to you, but thank you so much for taking the time to try to leave a review. If you can't leave one on Amazon, you can take the same review and go over and leave it on Goodreads. Both are so helpful for a new author. As I've mentioned before, I am working to get 50 reviews so that I can draw the attention of bookstores and libraries and so that they can see I'm a legitimate author with a legitimate book, something that would be worthwhile for them to stock on their shelves. So thank you for helping me to get to that milestone of 50 reviews. I so appreciate it. All right, today's chapters 32 and 33, we are in part three of Lies of the Magpie. If you listened last week, then you'll know that I called to get a doctor's appointment and I was turned down because the doctor wasn't taking new patients. And then Aaron happened to run into that doctor and was able to get me an appointment. Now I'm fretting about the doctor's appointment and worried about what will happen and especially worried about if I am sick enough to merit seeing a doctor. Does anyone else have this go through your mind? You're like, I don't know, am I really sick enough to go to a doctor? And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I just always have this worry that the doctor's gonna look at me and just think that I am a hypochondriac, that I'm making things up, that it's all in my head. Like I could be bleeding out on the table and probably think that I'm not sick enough to be at the doctor. But the challenging thing for me at this time was that I wasn't bleeding, nothing was broken. I didn't even really have a specific pain anywhere. Like if I had a lump or bump or lesion, it would have been easier. All I knew is that I felt so horrible, but I didn't have words for it. And it was so hard for me to try to imagine talking with the doctor and trying to explain why I was there in the doctor's office and nothing sounded legitimate enough. So chapter 32 is entitled Sick Enough and takes you through all of my preparation to go to this doctor's appointment. 
Then in chapter 33, I am waiting for the results, waiting and actually hoping for a legitimate diagnosis to the point that I start to fantasize that I want validation. I want legitimacy enough that I'll even take a diagnosis of cancer just because I feel so awful and I don't want it to be all in my head. I don't want it to just be labeled as depression. Like I'd rather have a serious sounding ailment than just have them say you have postpartum depression, which I didn't believe was a serious ailment. I really believed that it was just more of a a reflection on a person's character weakness than a legitimate physical illness. So in chapter 33, I worry and fret, wonder what my diagnosis will be, wonder how serious it will be, worry if it's not going to be anything. And without spoiling the chapter, the diagnosis that I end up with was not anything at all that I anticipated and is going to cause a lot more confusion and a complication as the story progresses. So with that bit of background, let's continue with the audio readings of Lies of the Magpie. Chapter 32, Sick Enough. Tissue paper crinkles under me as I shift uncomfortably on the exam table. My main hope is that I'm sick enough to justify Dr. Thorpe finagling his schedule to accommodate me. I'm holding out for a real medical diagnosis, not postpartum depression, which isn't a medical diagnosis as much as a character assessment revealing a woman of feeble fortitude failing to cope with the normal rigors of motherhood. What will you say to Dr. Thorpe? Lia quizzes me in preparation. We'd rehearsed this appointment and tested different dialogue. One problem is that I don't look sick. Nothing on me is broken, swollen, bruised, or bleeding. There are no unusual bumps, rashes, or cuts for a doctor to examine. Nothing to x-ray. On the outside, I look perfectly fine. In order for Dr. Thorpe to take me seriously and not perceive me as a raging hypochondriac, I've prepared a notebook with two pages listing my symptoms and questions. This hint came from an article I read entitled, Be Your Own Health Advocate. When the doctor enters the room, my hope sinks. It isn't Dr. Thorpe at all. A physician's assistant I've never met reaches out to shake my hand. Hi, I'm Bart Hansen. You can call me Bart. What brings you in today? This scene was pre-enacted last night in my mind with Dr. Thorpe playing the role of ideal medical expert. Gathering my bearings, I do my best to adjust for the change, look at my notes, and begin listing my symptoms. Unexplained weight loss. I'm down to 115 pounds. My clothes don't fit, and my wedding ring slides off my finger. I'm always hungry. Bart tilts his head. A woman complaining about being able to eat like a lion and still lose weight? I shouldn't have started with that one. I can almost hear women across the world pleading with me to please contaminate them with the same disease, to which I would answer, trust me, ladies, you don't want it. Looking down, I fumble with my notes, hoping he will forget about the weight loss comment and forge ahead. Extreme fatigue, zero energy. It's so hard to get out of bed and get moving in the morning. Bart raises his eyebrows like, this lady on the table can't be for real. None of what I'm saying comes close to describing how rotten I feel. Time to shift gears to things that sound more medical. I have shakiness, numbness, and tingling in my arms, hands, and sometimes in my legs. Bart nods, but I can't get a reading on his thoughts. 
blurry vision, lightheadedness. Sometimes I get a tin or metallic taste in my mouth. I've been experiencing a decrease in motor skills like a weak grip and loss of coordination. Also a sore, itchy throat with a lot of drainage, mucus in my chest. And I've had a cough all winter that won't go away. Are you getting enough sleep? I think back to last night. Awake until 1am thinking about this appointment. Then shortly after dozing off, Jack woke up to eat. I have a hard time falling asleep, and since Christmas my baby has been waking up at night to eat. The word baby spills out of my mouth before I can stop it, so I try to blow past hoping Bart isn't really listening. But even if I do sleep a full eight hours, I don't feel any better. Sleep doesn't make a difference in how I feel. How can I convey to this stranger that I am a tough girl? I'm not prone to call a doctor over a few hours of lost sleep and a fuzzy head. How old is your baby? Eight months tomorrow, I barely whisper. Bart snaps his laptop shut. I look down, already knowing what he's going to say. You know, he looks at me in a way that tells me I should have known better. It does take a full 12 months for a woman to completely recover from childbirth. My body jolts as if something heavy dropped. A surge of frustration boils up, and I want to grab Bart by the shirt collar, put my face in his, and shout. Look in these eyes. They are different from your eyes because I am a mother, and even my retinas have evolved through the stages of metamorphosis unique to a mother. I see things in microscopic detail that non-mothers miss. Twisting his collar, I would spit into his mouth. I have had four more babies than you ever will, and I am telling you, this time something is different. But he is the one with the medical degree. So I sit quietly, hands on my lap, lips closed, grateful he didn't say postpartum depression. At the door, he turns around. I will order some blood work, just in case. A nurse comes in and draws my blood, filling three or four vials with the dark liquid. How old is your baby? She chatters away while I bleed into glass. Oh, that's so fun. She bubbles at the thought of plain mommy. I don't have children yet, but I want to. She tapes a wad of cotton into the crick of my elbow. We're all done with you. At the checkout station, my head hangs while the office manager looks at my chart. Let's see, you pay 100% of every appointment until you meet your deductible. Aaron and I pray, every day, that we'll never meet our $10,000 deductible. That will be $125. How do you want to pay? In the waiting room, Lia sits in a leather chair reading Cosmopolitan. She looks exactly like the celebrity model on the cover. Riding down the elevator, I replay the appointment for her. Basically, I wasted 15 minutes of Bart's precious time and made a fool of Aaron. Lia makes a clicking sound. $125 to be told it takes 12 months to recover from childbirth? You should have gone shopping for shoes. Chapter 33, EBV. My last hope is that the blood tests will reveal something to validate why I feel so awful. The days pass, but Dr. Thorpe's office doesn't call with results. Maybe they don't call if there's nothing to report, Lia suggests. Aaron takes a few more afternoons to drive me to meet customers. Then he stops offering. Not only does it interrupt Tanner and Jack's nap schedules and prevent Aaron from finishing his work, but also, though Aaron never admits this out loud, my countenance calls to mind the lead character from Zombie Bride. 
My voice sounds like strained pasta left out to dry. So rather than building good business rapport, I am what the media would call a public relations nightmare for our struggling magazine. Perhaps Aaron will grow so annoyed with me that he'll drive me out to the desert and drop me off like an unwanted cat. Part of me wishes he would. I'm no kind of mother and an even lousier excuse for a wife. Each day is a reminder of the worthless human I've become. The next week, Aaron has another unplanned encounter with Dr. Thorpe in the hallway after a seminary meeting. At home, he repeats their conversation for me. I told him we hadn't heard any results from the blood tests, and he was surprised his nurse hadn't called us. Dr. Thorpe had grabbed Aaron's shoulder and said, Her blood test showed a couple of things. According to Aaron, Dr. Thorpe looked serious when he said, No wonder she feels awful. What does she have? Aaron had asked, somewhat panicked. I need to run more tests before I have definitive answers. Call my office tomorrow and schedule a follow-up, Dr. Thorpe had said, then left Aaron staring and hurried off to another meeting. In bed, Aaron sleeps soundly while I lie awake mulling over Dr. Thorpe's statement. Her blood test showed a couple of things. My eyes watch the odd shapes of night shadows move stealthily across the ceiling. A car engine turns over at the neighbor's house. The words churn in my head. No wonder she feels so awful. There is a reason, then? A cause behind my inability to function? Dr. Thorpe's words give me hope of validation, the possibility that I'm not a weak woman, but a strong woman dealing with a real physical challenge. But what did my blood test show? The possibilities are numerous. I could stay awake exploring them most of the night, which I do, counting the potential maladies higher than numbers of sheep at last falling asleep to the gentle lullaby of those liberating words. No wonder she feels so awful. A phrase which to me carries the relief and freedom of what a courtroom defendant must feel upon hearing the declaration, not guilty. Before the end of the week, I'm wearing another hospital gown, cloth this time, while Nadine, the ultrasound technician, smears warm jelly up and down my neck. What is she looking for? A tumor? Cancer? Do you see anything suspicious, Nadine? My chin is pointed high while she presses the probe deep against my jugular vein, clicking a button to capture images. We're not allowed to say anything. Nadine clicks the mouse with a perfect poker face, highlighting secret numbers and codes around the black and white detail of my thyroid on the monitor. Your doctor will give you the results. Without moving my neck, my eyes strain to spy if her fingers type the letters C-A-N-C-E-R. After a week of researching possible ailments from myelinolysis to meningitis, the conclusion I've drawn is that thyroid cancer is the ideal malady. Thyroid cancer is a serious enough diagnosis to prove that this is not a weak character issue. Also, The appearance of the word cancer in any form immediately garners attention and sympathy and basically comes with a doctor's excuse note to skip out on life responsibility for a while. Dear world, excuse Malia from any obligations. She has cancer. Give her non-judgmental permission to stay in bed while you watch her children. Give her your sympathy and deliver warm casseroles at five o'clock each evening. And do not ask her to spearhead the school carnival this year. Sincerely, God. Is it wrong, this morbid sense of satisfaction at being able to stick it to all the people who haven't believed me? 
My mind paints a gratifying picture of a guilt-ridden Bart Hansen tossing and turning in bed and promising, I'll never speak in a condescending way to any mother who comes into my office ever again. A diagnosis of thyroid cancer would mean people rallying to my aid. Aaron will hold my hand and watch me with worried eyes, apologizing that he insisted we go to Utah for Christmas. Bob will tell me I've worked too hard and not to worry about the magazine. My brothers will send flowers. My mom and sister will arrive to clean my house. Ladies at church will bring dinner and volunteer to watch the kids. Laya agrees that thyroid cancer is the optimal outcome. It will bring you sympathy, apology, and vindication. You deserve all that. In the end, my diagnosis will be exactly what I deserve. Great news! Dr. Thorpe breezes into the exam room. Your thyroid looks fantastic. No lumps, growths, or lesions. Dr. Thorpe appears pleased to deliver good news. Then his smile drops and he looks puzzled as my expression changes from hopeful anticipation to disappointment. A clean ultrasound pulls the rug out of my mandatory hospital vacation. What about, no wonder she feels so awful. So what is wrong with me? I can't go home empty-handed. What could I say to Aaron, to Bob, to people at church, to my family? That the doctor couldn't find anything wrong with me, so it must all be in my head? One of the blood tests we ran was an Epstein-Barr teeter. You've had Epstein-Barr for over eight weeks. What is Epstein-Barr? The term is recognizable, though I've always heard Epstein-Barr tossed into the same hat as chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia a vague category of illnesses that doctors assign names to so they don't have to tell patients, we don't know what's wrong with you. These are the types of illnesses that label a person as sick, with questionable air quotation marks. Of all the thousands of possible outcomes I'd envisioned, not one scenario had remotely considered the possibility of a mystery illness, one that comes with a lifetime warranty and no cure. Dr. Thorpe gives a medical school explanation about how a few different viruses are known to have only one nucleus and thus merit the name mononucleosis. So the knock-you-down, make-you-ultra-tired illness that society commonly refers to as mono isn't the only mononucleic virus. This microbiology lesson doesn't make me any wiser regarding my condition. So do I have mono? I ask for clarification. The Epstein-Barr virus can cause mono, but it can cause other illnesses too. Dr. Thorpe flips over the printout of my lab numbers and draws a graph. All we really know is that eight weeks ago, your immune system created antibodies against the Epstein-Barr virus. Eight weeks ago, I left urgent care with an antibiotic prescription for strep throat. But since the lab technician was gone, they hadn't swapped my throat to make certain. Can mono or Epstein-Barr symptoms be confused with strep throat? Some of the symptoms of mono are similar to strep throat, such as coughing, mucus buildup, and extreme fatigue. Having delivered his good news about my thyroid, Dr. Thorpe closes his laptop, ready to move through the lineup of patients waiting for him. His waiting room had been crowded, but I'm still confused. What about my thyroid? I'm desperate for more answers. Your TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, was high the first time, but this last test came back at 3.2, which is well within normal range. It's possible that the EBV had thrown your thyroid temporarily out of whack. Dr. Thorpe starts to leave again, but I don't know what step to take next. What do I go home and tell Aaron? Wait, I still have some questions if that's okay. 
Dr. Thorpe leans against the counter as I open my red notebook and fire a volley of questions at him. Could the surge in my thyroid number be a sign of a deeper problem? Did the tests definitively rule out a tumor or cancer? Are there other tests I should get? Why do I have trouble falling asleep at night? What can I do about the coughing and the phlegm? How can I be sure I don't have something more serious? Dr. Thorpe gives short answers, hinting that my 15-minute appointment with him is over. Am I contagious? I'm thinking about all the poor people who have been on the receiving end of one of my hugs, kisses, or handshakes over the past eight weeks. Piano recital guests, business contacts, Aaron's family over Christmas, my family who slept at my house and ate the food I'd coughed onto, and Jack? There's no way I haven't exposed Jack. If we tested the population, probably 90% of adults would already have antibodies to Epstein-Barr virus, showing that they've been exposed to it at some point in their life. A lot of people don't realize they've had mono. For them, it manifests as a cold, and children don't usually get mono. How do I get better? There are a couple of new antiviral drugs on the market, one that fights herpes, and the EB virus is related to the herpes virus, but you usually have to take it within three days of the viral onset. Whether it would help against a two-month-old virus is questionable, but you could try. Dr. Thorpe hands me a prescription for the new experimental antiviral medication and a lab order to retest my thyroid in six weeks, then leaves me staring at the cotton swabs in the glass jar next to the sink. After the appointment, I call my doctor brother, Paul, for a second opinion. Those antibodies could be from when you had mono in college. Mono's like chickenpox, he explains. A person gets mono once, then the immune system develops antibodies, so you never get mono again, and the antibodies will stay in your blood and show up on lab tests for the rest of your life. I hang up the phone more confused than before. Possibly I have mono. Possibly I don't. Possibly I have a variant disease caused by the Epstein-Barr virus. Possibly my thyroid isn't working. Possibly my thyroid is working fine. This isn't what I'd expected. I'd wanted a clear diagnosis with a scientific name and no ambiguous connotation that me being sick is all in my head. Should I take the antivirals? The pharmacy is lined with ceramic planter pots overflowing with thick petunia plants sporting jumbo red and white blossoms. This has been an especially good winter for petunias. Even the petunias in my own planter boxes boast larger petals than I've ever seen. Opening the glass door, I face my own wilted reflection. Everything around here is thriving, except for me. While the pharmacist fills the prescription, I roam the infant care aisle debating which brand of formula to use for Jack. The antivirals haven't been on the market long enough to prove safe for breastfeeding. The decision has been made for me. I will be weaning Jack. Aaron greets me at the front door, rocking a hungry Jack in his arms. He leans in to kiss me. His breath on my cheek feels baited. Perhaps he's been waiting for the results of this appointment with nerves as anxious as my own. What did Dr. Thorpe say? And so it begins. Aaron is the first in a lineup of people who will ask what the doctor found. My decision to take the antivirals probably had more to do with having an answer to their questions than out of belief that they would make a difference. He said I have a virus. He put me on an antiviral medication. Yes, this is the answer I will give them all, from my siblings to the ladies at church. Doctor says it's a virus, I'm taking an antiviral. Which is so much different than saying, Doctor says it's depression, I'm taking an antidepressant. Aaron seems relieved. 
Carrying Jack to breastfeeding base camp, I smother his ear, neck, and cheeks with kisses. Dr. Thorpe said babies can't get mono. Are you starving, my little man? I lift my shirt and let him nurse for as long as he wants, or at least as long as it takes for me to stop crying. Later that afternoon, when I give Jack his first bottle of infant formula, he looks into my eyes with curious satisfaction as if to say, So this is what real nutrition tastes like. What took you so long? That afternoon, Aaron moves Jack's crib out of our bedroom. I cross my heart, spit into my palm, and shake hands promising Aaron that for one week I will let Jack cry during the night instead of getting up to comfort or feed him. It's about time we all start sleeping through the night. This is Malia Warner. Thank you so much for joining me today for listening to these sample chapters from the audio version of Lies of the Magpie. If you just can't wait to hear how the story finishes, you can go buy your own copy today on Amazon. It's available in paperback and the Kindle version. You can also join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. on Facebook Live for a discussion of one chapter of Lies of the Magpie. And this week we will be discussing chapter three, Love and Marriage. As always, be safe, stay healthy, and I will meet you back here next week for another great episode of The Power Podcast. Bye-bye, friends.